We seem to think that, well, keeping our kids naive and innocent is actually a protective measure when, in fact, the opposite is true. We have to look out for each other. Just like we're agreeing to stay locked down for public health, we have to look out for children who can't look out for themselves. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, it's the time of the lockdown, and we're still apart, but at least we have new technology that allows us to video communicate while we record. That's right. And... How wonderful is that technology, Francie? You get to look at my face, <laughs> my face that was made for radio. Well, Jim, uh, you know, I was thinking of saying the same thing, but I'm just going to let you do it. Really? Yeah, you will, won't you? <laughs> Always. Anyway, we find ourselves in the midst of this lockdown, and for us, we're managing. But for some people, this is not a good situation at all. And you foretold that issue in your March 25th, 2020 article in the Washington Examiner entitled Coronavirus Pandemic Could Lead to Surge in Child Abuse. And it was a very well-written article about how children who are now virtually locked in with potential abusers will really have nowhere to turn. No. And you know, Jim, the thrust of my article was mostly about the rise we were already seeing in child physical abuse. There were some serious reports coming in from some hospitals in Texas, for example, about the number of cases of child physical abuse, of serious child physical abuse exploding in the first few weeks of the lockdown there in Texas. And so the thrust of my article was about how children are at increased risk for that because think about it, Jim, you and I have talked about this a lot. And that is, who are the people to whom children disclose abuse? We've talked a lot about how children often don't disclose abuse, especially sexual abuse, but the same has been true in my experience in physical abuse. And if children are not going to make what we call an outcry, what happens? How does it get disclosed? Right. And in most of those cases, it's when they get to school and their teacher notices something, when they tell their friends, when they're at recess or in homeroom, uh, when they're out in the playground, where they're playing sports, a coach or a trusted adult 
who they interact with. That's when the abuse is happening at home. There's also sort of a flip side that we have to address, and that is the fact that we're now giving teachers pretty much unfettered online access to children at home. And unfortunately, because most of these interactions are being done by video conferencing tools, that any teacher who might have had the intention to sexually victimize or groom a child into sexual victimization can now sort of see what circumstances the child is living in, whether or not they're being supervised, and they could actually take advantage of that situation. Well, and Jim, the same applies to people that the children don't actually know offline. You've talked a lot and you train a lot about grooming. And that's the way you and I know that child sex offenders find their victims online and then groom them to meet offline or to provide them with child pornography images of themselves while they're having this video conferencing. And so that's my concern about video conferencing. As you said, it's a window into the child's life that these offenders, whether they're teachers, coaches, or other people that are seeing them online, or whether they're strangers that they the children are meeting in these online chat rooms or video game sites, they are getting a window into the child that before these lockdowns and before Zoom and Skype and FaceTime really became the norm for us all day, every day, they wouldn't have had before. And that's going to give them dangerous insight, in my opinion, potentially of these kids. You know that better than anyone, Jim. Yeah, sure. And obviously, the vast majority of teachers and coaches and clergy and childcare workers, they're all good people. And they wouldn't even think about taking advantage of a child this way. But unfortunately, all those kinds of organizations are youth-serving organizations. They're target-rich environments for offenders. So offenders gravitate towards professions and volunteer assignments and opportunities to get access to kids. So this is one place where offenders may be given an advantage that they didn't necessarily have in an actual physical school environment or team environment or coaching environment, because if they have access to a child online and they can isolate that child and just talk one-on-one to that child, they could take advantage of the situation and begin the grooming process. Well, and think about this video conferencing, Jim, and what's happening inside family homes. You have potentially one or even both parents video conferencing on a regular basis or working there from home on a regular basis while their child is supposed to be in school or doing other activities in another room. The parent cannot monitor the child's online activity in the same way we hope people always do. And we tell people to monitor their child's online activity when they themselves are completely tied up online at the same time their child is supposed to be. So one of the things I wanted to talk about today, Jim, was to encourage all of our listeners, if you have children in the house, I know your schedules are busy. I know there are a lot of work demands. If you're working from home, it's very difficult to get your own work done and deal with your child and try to help your child with their schoolwork and monitor what they're doing. But never forget that their phone or their laptop or their tablet are an absolute window of access right into your child's bedroom. I mean, it's as if you threw open the window and put out a sign, welcome sex offenders. That's what you're doing by this window into your child's room. So you have to monitor that. Yeah. And we have to be completely honest about this. Most kids 
and uh, you know, from probably from the age of five to 17, are incredibly more sophisticated at online access and interactions and hiding interactions and hiding what they're doing from their parents and from any guardians. So it's a daunting task. And you really need, as a parent, you really need to get advice from technical advisors and get software that will help you monitor your children's activities online and that will keep that will record it and make sure that you can then later look at it when you do have time so that you can see if there's anything going on outside of what should be the norm in these any any interactions that your child has. Well, that's right, Jim. And you know, when we talk about child sexual abuse and monitoring your child's devices, and when we've done that in the past, people have asked us where to go. Well, a simple Google search will bring you all number of software programs that are out there that can help you make those decisions. But there's also the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, nickmick.org or netsmarts.org. Netsmarts with a Z at the end, .org has all kinds of online safety tips, things that you can train your children with, ways to talk to your children about online safety tools that you can use with your children. But what's most important, Jim, you've said it a million times so well, and that is communication with your children. You have to talk to your children about difficult topics. And Jim, one of your favorite things to talk about is about crossing the street. Can you talk about that? Well, we want to protect our kids from dangerous streets. So if we live on a dangerous street, we talk to them about it. We warn them. We bring them to the edge of the street. We show them that there's traffic going by. We take them to the corner. We hold their hand. We look both ways. We teach them how to do it safely. But with online access and with sexual victimization, we seem to think that, well, keeping our kids naive and innocent is actually a protective measure when, in fact, the opposite is true. It actually sets them up for victimization or for grooming if they don't have an adult avenue to actually discuss sex and sexual victimization. These offenders are out there wanting to take that opportunity to do it for you. And I think another thing while we're talking about this is the parents need to discuss with their children that that anything that they post online that has a sexual nature could actually rise to the level of child pornography. If your child takes a sexual image or even a image that is close to sexual or, or implying sexuality, that could actually be child pornography under the law. And even if they're sending it to other friends or somebody their own age, first of all, that other person may not be somebody their own age, and they may be getting duped into sending images to somebody who claims to be a child who isn't a child. But even if that is a child, it's still the same crime. And so your children have to be made aware that they can't play games with this kind of stuff and send images through the internet because it is it is a federal felony to do that. That's so true, Jim. And the thing that I worry about with children in lockdown is, as I said, you've got so much going on inside the home that the parents are just overwhelmed and they can't monitor everything the child is doing. But now more than ever, you have to be able to do it because those people who would take advantage of your children are usually tech savvy, probably more than you are, smart, sophisticated grooming types. They understand that now is the time when they may very well have unprecedented access to your child. And so you've got to be able to defend against those incursions from those who want to take advantage of this time of coronavirus lockdown. And Jim, I also want to say, 
before I forget about the article that I wrote at WashingtonExaminer.com, we all have to think like we're doing now. You know, I mean, the government, you and I had a discussion about this a few weeks back. The government has ordered us all locked down. Well, that order is really worth nothing if we don't cooperate with it. So it's all about voluntary submission to the order of the government. So what that means is we have to look out for each other. Just like we're agreeing to stay locked down for public health, we have to look out for children who can't look out for themselves. And that's what I was talking about in the article with these children who, as you so well said, Jim, a few minutes ago, their normal first responder line of defense, the school teacher, the school counselor, the principal, uh, the soccer coach, the PE coach, who normally would notice strange behavior from the child, suicidal behavior, depression that might indicate sexual abuse or uh, unexplained bruises or injuries on the child or unexplained absences from school. And or even the, the opposite of that, too. I mean, changes in children's behavior. They could be more active. They could be more hypervigilant. They could be more outgoing than they normally are. Each child can have a different reaction to an abusive situation. It's not just negative reactions. They could actually be overperforming because they're trying to make up for what they feel is damage to themselves. Well, that's right. And those first responders, that first line of defense who would normally notice those behavioral changes that they get trained to notice by people like Jim and me, they're they're not there. They're not there to notice these things. So as our as as you've agreed to lock down to protect your family and your friends and your neighbors, Take time out as you're going to and from the grocery store or as you're walking around your neighborhood to pay attention to the children that you would normally see. How do they look? Make sure that you understand that the same apparatus that is normally in place to protect children with respect to law enforcement and the Department of Family Services or where whatever it's called where you are here in Georgia, it's the Department of Family and Children's Services, DFACS, District attorney's offices, they're all still open for business. They're all still acting to protect children, but they can't do it unless they get a complaint, unless they get some tip that a child is in danger. So pay attention to the children that you see as you move around in your neighborhood, in your homes, uh, in your apartment buildings, in your condos, and at the park as you're taking a walk, because you may very well be that child's only chance to get help when they desperately need it. Absolutely. And in a couple of days ago, NPR published an article entitled Child Sexual Abuse Reports Are on the Rise Amid Lockdown Orders, exactly as you had predicted, Francie, in your article. And RAIN, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, runs the National Sexual Assault Hotline to report abuse. And they have noticed a huge uptick in the number of children calling in. These are minors calling in to report abuse. Now, there was a 22% increase in monthly calls from people younger than 18. And half of all the incoming contacts were from minors. So this is a really important thing. One, it's good that children are actually self-reporting. But we all know, Francie, and you, and you put the stats in your article, that literally it's only one or two out of 10 children who actually report sexual abuse. So if we're getting this huge uptick, that's only scratching the surface of what is actually going on behind the scenes. It is, Jim. And it's important for people to know that this 
hotline is for both adults and children. And I want to give out the number. We're going to give this out a couple of times, but the number in case you need help is 800-656-4673. That's 800-656-4673. During this time of change, we want you to know that ZipRecruiter's focus hasn't changed. They're still doing what they've always done, helping people find work and helping businesses find the right people for their open roles. If you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter is working with you to find the right job faster. They're dedicated to helping you get hired, from caretaking to delivering food and goods, to building medical facilities, supplying protective equipment, and so much more. In fact, ZipRecruiter's app will send you up-to-date job openings so you can be one of the first to apply. And if you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will invite candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it faster and easier to reach the people you need. By connecting people who need jobs and companies that need people, ZipRecruiter is working with all of us so we can keep moving forward. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. And Jim, you're right, because child sexual abuse is, I think, probably the most underreported crime. We know it's underreported anywhere from 75 to 90 percent. So if there's an uptick, there's still a massive number of unreported and underreported cases. And one of the things that so disturbed me about this NPR article was the time frame. This is a short window of time during the very early days of the lockdown. We haven't even gotten to the latter part of April yet, so we don't know what their statistics are going to be. I very much fear they're going to be the same or even worse. And the message in the NPR article, I think, was very important. And that was, as I said, the child protective apparatus, the government forces, the child protective services, the defects caseworkers, the law enforcement officers, the district attorneys, they are still working. And if they get a report, they will be investigating. They will be going out to the house to investigate. It's not like they're just going to make a phone call and say, hey, is anybody there abusing their child? It's going to be a normal investigation. And you're right, Francie. These statistics are just to the end of March. That means that's only two weeks into the lockdown and they already had a 22% increase. And here's the really difficult part. 67% of these kids identified the perpetrator as a family member and 80% of them said they were currently living with that perpetrator. So they were locked down in a situation where they were being offended against and they had nowhere to go. In one out of five of those cases, that's 20% of the cases, the minor was living with the abuser and the hotline personnel helped them call 911 immediately. So in 20% of those cases, the situation was so bad that they immediately got on the phone to 911. I hope that the other 80% of the cases also eventually called the police because the fact is that if there's any sexual abuse at all, it is a crime, period, no matter how low or high on the scale of severity it is, it is a sex crime if somebody sexually assaults a child, period. So I hope and I would encourage any of those kids who did report, who 
for whatever reason, didn't want to report to law enforcement. I hope that they get into a situation where they can report it to law enforcement so that that offender can be dealt with and and they can be protected from that point forward. Well, and Jim, you know, it's one of the things that so disturbed me in our discussion a few weeks ago. You know, I talked about this whole idea. It was right at the beginning of the lockdowns. And I talked about this whole idea of uh, the lockdowns being done in the name of an emergency, a public health emergency. Of course, I argue, and I know you agree with me, child abuse is a public health emergency too. We don't lock down anything to protect children, which is more shame on us. But these lockdowns have some unforeseen consequences, and this is definitely one of them. And it's one that I hope our lawmakers, our public policy people, our child advocates get right in there to the government when this is over and make sure that they advocate for ways to see that this does not happen again. If yeah, we well, have to lock down again, we have to think about the cost to children that we are causing, locking them inside homes with no access to assistance or first responder looks at them for weeks or even months at a time. Well, Francie, I don't think we should wait till the end of this, and I think it should be addressed now. Certainly, Congress is doing a lot of work uh, from a distance. They're voting on things uh, by video, and I think that's necessary in this particular case. There's so much going on a significant increase in these cases. I'm sure that the child protective workers are overburdened because of it. They already were overburdened. They're always always underfunded. And I believe there are certain studies out that talk about the reduction, I would say, in child sexual victimization. They say the numbers are going down. They say the reports are going down. I say bullshit, 100% bullshit. First of all, they do surveys where they talk to kids with parents on the line. It's self-reporting is not a good way to measure this. And not that there's a lot of other good ways to measure it, but we do know when we catch offenders that generally they have multiple victims over multiple years. And to think that this problem is being reduced is just, it's just foolhardy. It is ridiculous when we know from online investigations that this the issue of pedophilia and child sexual victimization is rampant and it is not something that has gone down or decreased it actually has increased over time and because of the rationalizations and the minimizations and projections that online community offenses has increased the number of offenders who are emboldened to reach out to kids and actually sexually victimize them. Well, and Jim, the thing that, that I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but the thing that really drives me crazy about those kinds of studies that erroneously report based on stupid methodologies, like you've just said, calling children at home when their parent is on the line, if their parent's the offender, the child's hardly going to report that they're being offended against. It's more than stupid. It's dangerous because what it does is it actually costs law enforcement and child protective services the resources that they really need in order to go after these offenders. You know, you and I have talked many times. We've had we featured many cases here on Best Case, Worst Case. And I post about it all the time on Twitter and Facebook about these children who overworked, underfunded child protective services and law enforcement officers ignored until the child was dead. And that's where these studies lead. 
there aren't enough police officers working these kinds of cases. There aren't enough child protective services workers working these cases, and they are overwhelmed and underfunded. Now, listen, I don't want to say that that's an excuse. It is never an excuse to neglect a child so that the child dies from the neglect of the parent that was obvious. And I, I mean, I can't even, I can even name all of the cases that have happened over the last few months, Jim, that we've talked about and that we've posted about on our social media page where there were child protective service workers and they just didn't see it. And one of the ones uh, that is very prominently featured right now that is a uh, frighteningly recent case in the last decade, Jim, is the trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix. And uh, we're not going to go into that here. I, I hope we can discuss it another time in full, but that is perfectly illustrative of a case where you had multiple reports by multiple people about abuse that this poor child, Gabriel Fernandez, was suffering. And he was just ignored. Uh, somebody came in and had a look at him and then left. And that child was horrifically murdered. It is one of, if not maybe the worst case I've ever heard about. And we've seen a lot, Jim, but when I watched that uh, docu-series, I, my heart hurt. I mean, it was really hard to watch, but I felt the same way that I felt as a prosecutor reviewing evidence in difficult child pornography or exploitation cases. I owe it to the victims. It is the, the victim endured it. I care and I am going to watch and I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to help put that person away or make sure the next person can't do it. I'm determined that that not go unanswered, this kind of case. And that's what I'm worried about here. When people talk about child abuses going down, you are starving police agencies, prosecutors, and child protective workers of the resources they need to protect the children like Gabriel Fernandez. Yeah. And they have to know. And, you know, there are two very prominent researchers that are leading the charge in this, but they have to know that though their numbers and their methodologies are good empirical studies, the foundation on which they are based is absolutely flawed and it could never produce accurate information. It's sort of like when people talk about recidivism studies, and this is always get, gets me because they say the recidivism rate of child sex offenders is very low. What they mean is, one, somebody who commits child sex crimes, who is reported, that's two, who is then arrested, that's three, who is then brought to trial and convicted, that's four and five. And then they get sentenced or not, that's six. And then they get released from that sentence, that's seven. And then they reoffend, and that's eight. And then they get reported again, that's nine. And 10 is they get reconvicted. You have to have all 10 of those steps happen before you get one tick on a recidivism study. When in fact, we know that 90 percent of these cases never get reported in the first place. So somebody could have 10 offenses and only get reported for one. What's more likely is somebody could have 200 offenses and only get reported for one. And the fact is that they will continue to reoffend at their next opportunity. Only they're better at it because they don't want to get caught again. 
And so they use tools like grooming, which actually minimizes the amount of reporting that happens. It actually has children come back for repeat offenses because they're providing that child with something that child really needs. And that's the insidious nature of grooming. And it creates a situation where we have compliant victimization and a conspiracy of silence about what happened. And then on top of it, when some children do report, they report to an organization or to a family member, and they get either disbelieved or they get shut down because people don't want to deal with it. They don't want to embarrass the family. They don't want to embarrass the organization. And I could go on, and I'm sure you could go on about this forever, Francie, but the fact is that this whole ridiculousness about recidivism studies should be thrown out. But defense attorneys use it all the time to try to minimize how dangerous repeat child sex offenders are. They do. And those statistics, as you said, Jim, are just completely invalid. And it's important to know that. And it's important not to underestimate or overestimate, but it's important not to underestimate the danger that children face from these convicted offenders. And don't get me started on all these states letting all these offenders out of prison early, including murderers and child rapists, uh, because they face some small risk of getting coronavirus. Uh, I have to be honest, I don't care. They've been convicted of murder or child rape. They need to stay in prison, period, as far as I'm concerned. But these are issues, Jim, that we have to deal with. We have to deal with them now. We have to deal with them for future issues like this so that Gabriel Fernandez doesn't have to die. Because I never want to see anything about a case like that again. And it happens every, at least every month or every couple of weeks. I see a horrifying case that's exactly the same story. Over and over, a child is being abused. Over and over, someone tries to report it. And over and over, the system fails. Well, here, we have children who are locked down, some of whom are being abused and are being locked down with their offender. And what is happening to them? This hotline is a window in, and it is telling us that we are failing these children and we have to fix it. I want to give that hotline number one more time, Jim, before we close. And that's 800-656-4673. If you know someone who's being abused or if you're being abused or if you've been assaulted, it's for adults or children, please call the hotline. They'll know how to help you. Very well said, Francie. And that wraps it up for this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. And this really is a worst case scenario. Till next time, thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, 
the number2l.org.